out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. And as you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be not really so much indie pop as early 70s hippie pop. I'm not sure what you'd call it. Anyway, um, quite recently, I spoke to a member of the Global Village Trucking Company. Yes, the one and only John Owen. To find out more about life, love and poetry, for those who might be interested, yes, there must be someone out there. They were famous for various reasons. There was a small short film made of them in 1973 and the band and road crew and all all their families lived together in a Norfolk commune in the UK and uh, did an awful lot of benefit concerts, free festivals and extended free-form jam sessions. They became very well-known. Anyway, this is the interview with John, and um, after a very short bit of uh, casual chat, we got down to the interview, and I will just warn you, it's a very long interview. So enjoy it. It's quite gripping. The last bit I'm particularly fond of, but um, like I said, it's epic. It's like um, it's a free-form jazz festival. Anyway, look, John... Um, yes, tell us about your early musical influences. Take it away. I think the first record I ever bought was Well I Ask You by Eden Kane. <laughs> I heard exactly. Well I Ask You, Who Are the Way to Treat, which was, who was uh, Robin Sarsted's brother. Right. right. Uh, yeah, uh, that's the early days. And I've my early days were a sort of combination of listening to people like one of my heroes who has ever has always been one of my heroes and i think he's one of the greatest singers of the 20th century but there were several years where you weren't where it wasn't particularly hip to say so is roy orbison oh right yes the big i i think i wanted i first wanted to be a singer Walk, I used to walk, I used to walk home from, I lived in Oxfordshire, yeah? I used to walk home from Bicester to a village, well, I lived in a village as well, where I came home, and I, there was a railway bridge, and it had great reverb, and I used to sing a candy-coloured clown they call the Sandman, tiptoes to my room every night, just a sprinkle stardust and a whisper, go to sleep, everything is all right. I mean, and I, I, th- I always think it's why I grew up with sort of quite a, a high voice, actually. And yeah. it's of my, it was a combination of that and like the blues, yeah. <laughs> which is a very strange thing. Well, cause, I, just because if you if we fast slightly pause and then fast forward into the 80s, no. that was when I was very obsessed with John Peel. He would often talk about Roy, the big O. I think it was yeah. the big O. And um, yeah. going to see him in Ipswich. And, and at that time, He'd come back with an album that we all loved. There was, um, I think it was called Mystery Girl. And I played a track on the show last week, funny enough. Yeah, it's okay. You've, you've Got yeah. It was the song and Driving All Night. And it was produced with people like Jeff Lynne and Tom Petty. And he suddenly had this moment in 87, 88. And of course, and the Travelling Wilburys as well, of course. Yes. So he, you know, when you said Roy, because I thought you were going to say someone else, like, I don't know. Hump, uh, hump, oh no, God, who were one of those, I don't know, Anthony Newley or someone like that, but no. Oh, 
No, Andy Newley was all right. Well, I tell you, he was a great singer. He's always, oh, we can talk about who great singers who like, you know, show me up as being, I mean, I, 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 Andy Williams is great. Andy Williams has always done great singles, but I don't want to get into great sort of. <laughs> no, I know. But I have well, to say, when, but when I, hear his version, when I hear his version of Moon River, it still makes me feel quite melancholic, really. Yeah. But the, but then, you know, he's not, not as, uh, I mean, like the British guy, um, I was another bus driver. Oh, can't remember. His name will come to me. Um, yeah. And so I suppose it was my, they were my first influence. I suppose my hero, my absolute hero, and I suppose also the blues, because I mean, I had about three months piano lessons when I was seven, you know. And I was, uh, I, got, I have piano, I think I have piano players dyslexia. I cannot cope with it. And I just, I, I'd had three months piano lessons and couldn't cope with it at all until I suddenly heard Otis Spann. Otis Spann, Muddy Waters. And I thought, it's all right, I want to play the piano. And I thought, oh, God, it's all right to want to play the piano like that. So I taught myself to play the piano. Yeah. And, you know, and so I got the blues. And uh, But my all-time hero, the real one, is actually, is a man called, oh, well, you, you'd have heard of him because you've come, is Arthur Lee. Arthur Lee, yes, from uh, Love. Yeah, Arthur Lee is my, um, who I came across, well, what was I, 15, 16, 15. And I think that's sort of my ever-ending, my my sort of yeah. I mean, he is sort of my uh, my um, yeah. He's my man. He's your man. So during the sixties, did you suddenly have that moment? You know, like um, there was the Philip Larkin poem. The sixties started in '63 with I don't know Lady Chatterley's oh. Lover and the first Beatles album. Were you yeah. aware? Did, did did you just think, God, this is brilliant being a teenager in the sixties? There's all this amazing music by people like the Stones, the Beatles, the Kinks, and then Jimi Hendrix, the Doors. Were you kind of all part of that world? Well, I suppose I must have been, yeah. Um, yeah, because there were a lot of, yeah, good people around, and a lot of good British bands as well. You know, the Kinks. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I used to rush down to tap hours in Oxford and sort of go into the booths and play the latest sort of, you know, when you're allowed to go in and put a bit of plastic on and play it and promise you wouldn't scratch it and then take it back. Yeah. You wouldn't. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I suppose I had a bit more of a... Yeah, I suppose from a musician point of view, I mean... I was probably a little bit, yeah, it was probably the later, the middle, mid-60s, yeah, of when I'd listened to a lot of American, lots of listened to blues and listened to people like, um, yeah, Love and um, Jefferson Airplane, and It's a Beautiful Day and people like that. Yeah, absolutely. And, yes. yeah. And were you aware of people like John Peel and the Perfume Garden? Were you sort of... And yes. I, I, I shot, I, well, at the Festival of the Flower Children in 1967, and she went up where he was DJing. I went up and asked him for a request. Excellent. And of course, it's seven and seven is my love. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. So were, were you also aware of things like, you know, 67, 
there was the the gathering of the tribes in San Francisco in January, in sort of May, June time or July. There was the twenty four hour uh, Technicolor Dream at, at the Ali Pali. Were you were were the, these things kind of on your radar? They were, but I wasn't really in London. I was in Oxford more, so I was much more. I wasn't. I didn't. I wasn't up in London very much then. Um, so I, and it was yeah. I suppose I was aware of it, and it was also when I was first in like my first band I was in when I was at school, and we would do sort of numbers like that. We do like oh yeah, yeah. Well, actually, love numbers and um, well, and Hendrix numbers, which is a little bit. Is that a little bit later? I suppose. No, mm. no, it's back, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I must admit, I was I wasn't around London very much in those times. Yeah, right. But I was aware, of course. I mean, I was a good good sort of weekend hippie. Yeah. That's why I was, the, I was at the Festival of Flower Fielding, yeah, which was a great gig. The, yes. small, faces, the small faces were wonderful. Another right. one of my, another one of my lit heroes, actually, Steve Marriott, who I think is one of the greatest British soul singers ever. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, were you feeling particularly idealistic at that stage? You know, were, were things feeling optimistic as well as we could change the world? God. Oh God, that's going back a bit, David. Um, well, I suppose we all were to an extent, but then it's very hard to think of it in retrospect. In retrospect, because the truth is that we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so um, to go back and think, oh, we did. We think we really could. When actually we know we. Did well in some ways we, we did but I'm not sure how much is rooted politically um, than fashion wise I mean fashion wise the world changed in there mm. and I suppose you know I always have a tendency to like all those days of like the late 60s and early 70s when I you know I presumably you sort of know there's a reason why you're talking to me, yes. which is the global instructing company and all that, yes. and communes and, and communes and Suffolk and free festivals, all that. I think that my, aha, oh God, I have to be careful who's listening. Uh, I think my um, motivation was slightly more political than others who thought we're going to save the world by peace and love. I think, I think, I, in retrospect, I mean, I used to get into trouble for being slightly more political than, hey, man, just chill out. <laughs> just, I mean, hey, yes, let's do a benefit for arms to Chile. Oh, no, we can't do that, you know. Right, yes. So when but did little, you... So did you feel, because I don't know if you went to the V&A exhibition, So You Want a Revolution, and sort, you know, and, and sort of had a quick recap about that glorious decade. That? that was at the V&A, and it had, um, it, was a, it was a really big gig about three years ago, and it had Barry Miles, who was kind of there, and Joe Boyd. I went to one of the, you know, the opening night or the opening afternoon, and they were all there. In, an in exhibition there, which was... And I didn't actually go to any events there. I went to an exhibition there, uh, which was probably that. Did it have the big, big sort of three when you did? When there was there the big, big Floyd thing? Was that was that that one? 
No, was it? it wasn't the Pink Floyd no. one, but it was the people who organised that, who'd also organised this other event as well. And you went into various rooms and it had... Yeah, know, it, it rings it, a bell. Yes. But then, because, you know, because the 60s, obviously, so much happened. And I sort of spoke to Barry Miles and I said, look, what happened, Barry? You know, we're there in the 60s. You did all that kind of amazing stuff. All those gigs, the newspaper, IT magazine, paper, etc. And then, and then I said, well, what happened when, you know, the 70s came? And he just said, we were all really tired. We just wanted to go to bed, which seemed like a fair enough answer because it was obviously well, quite... You say that, but I think in a lot of ways in this country, I think there's a counter argument. Like in this country, the 60s didn't actually happen until the 70s. I know there were, you know, there were very like, I mean, as I say, I wasn't really around London in, uh, I was in Oxford. Um, and very much a part of that scene. Didn't come up to London that often um, during that. So it's more like the 70s and early 70s when I started being active and going around and, and doing sort of gigs across the country and being in London doing things like, you know, the, the all-nighters at the Lyceum and the uh, sort of um, things like that. And that's when I was born. I met Hoppy, right? I mean, it was Hoppy from the International mm -hmm. Times. Hoppy, but, see, Hoppy was a great, he was a great friend of ours. Hoppy spent an entire summer walk, um, following us around. I don't know, he took, a, he took a shine to us. He went, and these are the early days of videoing, right. when, you know, you didn't have a video camera, you had a bloody trolley yeah. that you dragged around a reel-to-reel videotapes, right? And he took, did an entire summer sort of coming around and videoing us in places like Grantchester Meadows, um, and that was like 72, 73. So in lots, I think that sort of, my experience of that sort of, what we might call it called a counterculture, was, was more then. I wasn't really a part, you know, the all-nighters at the Lyceum and things like that, and the Roundhouse and those things was, was a bit, little bit later. I mean, mm. I was a bit, maybe I was a bit more a bit of an observer, that's what I mean. I mean, I went to, I was talking to somebody about the other day how I was at the very first Fleetwood Mac gig uh, at uh, the Windsor Jazz Festival, you know, which was, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I was very much a sort of, I think it's probably more before I was active in doing things, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I suppose what happens, this is a vague theory, okay, I guess what happened in London was a very small group of people in the 60s. Yeah. That kind of didn't, obviously that wasn't happening in Norwich and possibly not happening in Oxford, but it definitely sort of crept out. But by the time it crept out to those places, the people who were part of that probably were a bit exhausted and a bit jaded because, you know, let's face it, we all have moments where we think it's going to be wonderful and the honeymoon period is going to last forever. Then it doesn't. And, <laughs> and then, but, and the other thing that happens, which I've, I've realised, is that the, the 16 to 18 year old is always the 16 to 18 year old, which I know you'll think, yes, that's obviously true. But then when you're 22, you can't be that same person, even though you're still hanging in there thinking I'm still young. It's a bit like, well, you're not quite because there's a new group of people and they want their new sound. They don't really want to hear the old sound. They, they want the new band. So when that kind of 70s glam scene came along, they, they didn't get embraced by the 60s counterculture because it's a bit like, my God, what are you doing? You, you, you know, this is just frivolous rubbish and you all look like girls and we are men with long hair and big beards you know it's like that, that you know they wanted that next generation wanted their stars they didn't really care about 
Jim Morrison and Crosby, Stills and Nash, they wanted a, you know, they wanted Gary Glitter, didn't they? So they kind well, of, it does of the early 70s, there were still quite a lot of geezers going around with big beards and long hair. <laughs> I, I didn't really have a big beard. I had long hair. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. But it, I suppose it kind of vibrates. So, so when did you start to think, look, we could be in a band? And, when, and how did your band sort of come together? The Gold Moody Trucking Company? Yes. Okay, all right. Um, um, well, I, I was playing in bands in Oxford uh, when I first started, about, about 67, actually. So I was, I was listening to people, you know, a lot, American people, American Otto, and uh, playing, and it was a blues band, actually. So I was listening to more, more sort of Chicago music rather than San Francisco, to be quite honest. Um, and uh and I went to, so I decided, oh, I decided I want to be a musician. Yeah, so of course I went to art college uh, at Oxford Poly, which was Oxford Poly. No, it wasn't even Oxford Poly when I went there. It became Oxford Poly when I was there. Now it's Brooks University, isn't it? Um, uh, I'm playing in blues bands and playing in, in um, more. And then I'm, I played with Michael Medora, my friend Michael Medora, who lives down the road here, actually, from me. And... Um, ironically, and uh, we were playing, and we had a band, I can't remember what it was called, called an and Simon, who was a drummer, and then I was playing, and I sort of, I think I left college and had a happy life being an interior decorator. I got myself a good job painting flats and was quite paid quite well. Yeah. I was playing a bit of guitar, but wasn't really, you know, I'm dabbling around. And then suddenly, one day, Michael, who disappeared off somewhere, not quite sure where, suddenly came back to my flat, in uh, Grand Pond in Oxford, down St Aldays, and he said, we've got, we, Simon and I are in Suffolk. We're at Albra, Fort Ness. And uh, we've got this geezer who's playing. We've got his house where we're playing. And, uh, and it's really good, but we haven't got any songs and we need somebody to get it together. We haven't got any songs, we haven't got a singer, so I've come to get you. Um, so he had, he got to me and I did sort of up my bags and, Get on the train. That's the first time I ever arrived in Suffolk. I remember, remember, remember arriving at Saxmundham Station and being picked up and taken to uh, the seaside. Nice. That's how we. Um, that's how we got together. Oh, that's a very organic happening way. You just left. You got on the road. You were like a Jack Kerouac figure. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say. I wouldn't put it quite romantically. I think I was probably my time had come to. I think I. I think my time had run out painting flats. I think I've been rumbled. I was onto a good thing. Yes. <laughs> so and, when. Uh, so when you got the when you were there with the the early members, did it feel like you were on a mission? Because often in those those early months and that first year, people have that honeymoon period. Did it feel like an exciting moment? And when did the when did the name of the band come together? Oh, really? When did the band of the band come together? Um, I suppose it was in the fact that we had a place to play. We were lucky it was a house we could stay in. So it was a place where we could, you know, just play. And so I wrote some songs and we sort of started playing again. And somebody, so we could set up and play to the sea. And I remember the day that Peter Pierce came around and complained about the noise. <laughs> Peter, he came around. And uh, which was a bit embarrassing, but it was all right. Uh, 
the name, the name, well, it's funny actually, because our first gig, we didn't have that name. Our first gig, which was at Bristol University, uh, I think we got that because we knew somebody at Bristol University, so blagged this gig. And um, uh, we didn't have that now. I can't the name. It was a really weird name. It was something like Equabar. What? Because I like it. Our, our, our roadie who wrote about a lot of the lyrics had this dream. And we thought, OK, OK, we'll go along that. Oh, yeah. And we thought, it's a bit of that name. And then somebody, we had a, we had a bus. We got our coach, which we bought from, um, oh, Wincops. Wincops. Is Wincops still going? Um, uh, which is down that way, isn't it? Uh, and um, we were going to write on the front, the global village, destiny unknown, the global village trucking. Somebody said, oh, well, why don't we call the band that then? Uh, so we did. It seemed like a better name. Yes. Had you consumed the work of people like Ken Kesey and Jack Kerouac and had that, all that kind of like in the back of your mind, you know, we're going to hit the road and we're going to, and the Grateful Dead and, and the Incredible String Band. <laughs> Were they all people? Were they all people that you were sort of like somehow sort of like osmosis taken into your DNA? This is where I get into trouble because probably more so other people in that band than me. Yes, I no, absolutely. I don't think I probably got into the whole mystical thing of it quite so much. I was. It's like it's when when people say, "Oh." The globalist company, and some people sort of the closest thing to the dead to come out of Britain. I thought that's a bit strange. I think our jams were far more akin to the sort of uh, the, the the B side of De Carpo by Love rather than the Grateful Dead. But um, yes, I think there were. I mean, we were influenced. I think other people more influenced than me. I was there because I liked writing songs. I liked singing, and I, I liked. But I do. I did very much like. I think the common thing was I really like improvising. Yeah. I really being there, making up and saying, well, here we are, here and now, let it go. And um, so I suppose I really go into that. Oh, well, yes, absolutely. We did. And, but then <laughs> it was ironic that we had to, the story is about how we left Suffolk. <laughs> it's quite funny because um, we were there for about four months. And, um, you know, it's like, I mean, uh, Michael, when he came and said, come down, you have a room and you can sign on and you get your room paid for. Fantastic. You know, I didn't sign. I wasn't signing on. So you could sign on. These are the days where you go and sign on and you get your three pound a week paid. You've got like, you know, seven pounds a week for your food and blah, blah, yeah. blah. Yeah, you're a singer. Oh, that's fine. In Oxford. Oh, you're a singer. That's fine. That's perfectly good occupation. Right. But it did get to the point after three months, there were three of us signing on, myself and Michael and our then bass player, Nicky, uh, who, wasn't, yeah, who was with us for a while. He was in, very, in the very early days. Um, they suddenly came round and interviewed us and told us we were the three least employable people in East Suffolk and gave us two weeks to get out of town. <laughs> <laughs> and we thought, oh, God, OK. Now, this luckily, this was just... This was actually luckily because we were just actually going off and moving sort of back to Oxford. We were going to move to Oxford for a while. Mm. And we did move back to Oxford for about six months before we originally, then we, then we actually came back and settled in um, East Anglia and Dis and then um, uh, near Beckles, Wangford, Southerton Way. Right. Uh, 
Yeah, so I suppose we did, and we did have this idea. I mean, yes, we did in the fact, I mean, <laughs> great story which probably illustrates that, Bickershaw. Uh, you remember Bickershaw? Do you remember that Bickershaw Festival? Yes, with the great, oh God, the guy who organised it was yeah. the um, Yes. He, did the, he used to do that really interesting programme. Be Beadle's about it, was not he? Jeremy Beadle. And everyone thinks, Jeremy Beadle, slimy, whatever he was. But he was actually wasn't. No. <laughs> well, or whatever. Well, we um we thought, oh, Bickershaw, we should be playing at Bickershaw. But we weren't, because we were in Oxford. Nobody really knew about it. So we got in our bus, and we just drove up to Bickershaw. Now, I wasn't feeling very well. I had this strange sleeping sickness. Totally, I don't know why. And uh, I remember them putting me up on the roof with a guitar and we got to the gates at Bickershaw and they said, oh, we're the reserve band, Global Village Trucking Club, we're the reserve band. And we just drove through. <laughs> uh, we used to do things like that. And there was another story about like, um, at, uh, where did, Aldermaston, where like Aldermaston, there, there was a lovely piece actually in The, the Guardian, uh, the Global Village Trucking Company, crashed through the hedge in a battered green bus and we just crashed through the hedge and set up and played so we did do a bit of that a sort of guerrilla yeah guerrilla progging and other times where we would find out and where was the big sit-in down at was it Thamesmead Polly where they'd all sat in over what the 72 yeah we'd be 72-ish sort of um that's what I mean about like the activities in this country were more sort of rife. Okay, you've got the Hornsey lot, but the, which was that the Hornsey was late 60s, wasn't it? Hornsey yes. But like the other, like the sort of student unrest, which I must say that I probably relate more to rather than a sort of peace and love and we're going to save the world through rainbows. Sorry, that sounds incredibly trite. And I don't even mean it to. Oh, pardon me. God, don't go, don't use that. Um, uh, I actually believed in sort of a bit of direct action and what we could do in direct action. Not, not you know, sort of aggressive direction, but, but I think I thought that that 60s, I mean, if you talk about IT, when you were talking about International Times, IT and Hoppy and those people, that was a very political organisation as well as being, okay... They weren't a bunch of hippies. No, absolutely. As, uh, weren't a bunch of hippies per se. There was a lot of other stuff going along and Hoppy and his video stuff and his more political stuff. It was all about social conscience. So it's more about social, yes, yeah, more about social conscience that we're going to save the world by, by all pretending we're living on hate ashbury I suppose. Yeah. I, with Hoppy and like with a lot of people when you have that kind of like untouchable and it happened with the Rolling Stones but Hoppy also went to prison didn't he and I think he came back or came out of that experience quite a different person and it probably would freak anybody out being locked up like that wondering yeah. if you were going to come out and I know the Stones you know probably pushed their luck and then thought shit this could be really unpleasant and luckily they got they you know they didn't go to prison for some little Thing. so it was but it kind of wakes people up quite quickly doesn't it it's it stops you feeling a little bit complacent Hoppy was a yeah he was a great man I remember we went to see him about oh about 
uh, must be about five years ago before he before he died, because we suddenly well he got in contact with us actually or or, or oh, what was his what was his friend's name what was his name I can't remember her name, um, saying look Hoppy's got all these tapes he'd still got all these video tapes of us and he said he baked one. And actually, you know, because, you know, that whole thing about baking tapes and to make it play. And he'd done one and would we like to go around and see it. So George, who was our then, who was our early manager and actually uh, probably more friends with Helpy over the years as well, uh, did some work with him. Um, so we went, went to see him and um, it was really good. Uh, yeah. And we watched this video and say, well, do we do it? It's quite expensive doing it sort of. I don't know what's happened to them now, but I mean, he did a lot because he did get into sort of like, he got into community arts yes. and, you know, masses of art for people. So I think, and I think funnily enough, that's much more a sort of route that I've taken. You know, I feel very privileged that I've made a living out of music for the last 30 years, but uh, without having to go through the lot of the shit that musicians go through, do you know what I mean? You know, what I <laughs> so, um yeah so <clears throat> when you got back to when you went to the your disc commune period this is yeah. when the band had increased its size and you'd got some more heavyweight musicians in by then hadn't you well i wouldn't say heavyweight. well well i think we were more settled i mean basically the four of us are saying we just swapped around bass players yes but then people like james lascelles came in no, James was there at the beginning. Was he? Okay, so there you go. So he why was your... Think, why do you think we had a house in Fort Ness? Yes, it all makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I know, I, I feel slight guilt about it all nowadays. Yes, but then... Uh, you he was there all the time. He, he, was, he, was who, he was who Michael Michael and Simon had met and said, oh, come round, yeah, we've got this keyboard player. No, he was, he was, he was, he was playing and then that they got me down because I needed somebody to write some songs and sing. Right. Uh, but then we had a bass player, our Nicky, who didn't last long. And then we got another, another bass player called, oh God, Steve Swanberg, because we thought, oh, this is interesting. This is, this is a great, well, it's a bit of a funny story, actually, because like Simon, our drummer, was probably more uh, California and uh, like, whoa, that way sort of influenced and um than the me particularly maybe uh you know well you know and uh he and we were auditioning and somebody told us about a californian bass player a california oh we must have a californian bass player and we got this californian bass player who'd been in germany playing in bases or something and he came up oh he's gonna be like our ray of californian sunshine he's gonna make the band all like and he wasn't he was he was such a dour <laughs> steve swanberg and um yes he was with us for a few months uh but it, it didn't really work out till we got uh, till we eventually got john mckenzie the yeah. blessed little john mckenzie who you know rest in peace you know you, you know john mckenzie Yes, I was yeah. in your post. Yeah, all oh, right. Oh, absolutely. Oh, oh, oh. yes. Um, who was a wonderful man. And we, we sort of stole him from the school gates when he was 16, because well, I think we knew he was going to be great yeah. when he was great. So mm. 
So it was interesting because a couple of weeks ago there was a documentary on the the studio in in this sort of Monmouth Rockfield Studios. What was your experience? Because that had only just started then when you did your first album. Uh, and it had begun a little. I think it was probably being taken a bit more seriously then. I mean, I don't think you would be necessarily be at risk of being mown down by a herd of cows when you stepped outside the sort of, you know, the studio block then. But it was still, yeah, I think it, it'd, been, it'd been established and who'd worked there then? I mean, like, the you know, the Welsh, I mean, Man worked there, of course, and uh, Dave Edmonds. It probably wasn't, you know, hadn't reached Oasis or... No. or Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, exactly, Bohemian Rhapsody. I mean, I think when we first went there, it was when they were just converting over from a 16-track. I remember we went back and they said, oh, we went back to do some open. We've got our 20, we've got our 24 track now. Oh, you're allowed in there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But it was one place in the fact it was probably one of the first places that you could go to, roll up, go up a hill, and like you didn't have to go anywhere else. Had somebody who'd cook for you. We had a lovely guy who came and made us Guinness cake and nice, you know, pies and things. So it was, it was, it was lovely for that. And they were really nice people, yeah. And not and take a Fritz Fryer, the amazing Fritz Fryer, who used to be in the Four Pennies, who was our producer. Right. Yes. <laughs> and did you and did you go in with the the material already there, or did you do some sort of improvisation and? I think. I think those are the days when you sort of. You sort of still did. You still sort of know what you know what you're going to play. I suppose there there's certain tracks that we um improvised a little bit more or built up there. Funnily enough, the one which is the more sort of improvisational track, um, watch out, there's a mind about, um, which there is still, uh, and this is something I be keep people keep pestering. Oh, when are you gonna make sure it comes out on CD, John? When are you gonna do it? Oh dear. And I said, Oh I will, I will, I will. Um and uh, there is a there's a Rockfield recording of that, and actually, back on the album, it's not the Rockfield. It's a that is actually a live improvised recording, live at um, Oxford Polytechnic, actually. Right. Yeah, and and one of the, because one one of the tracks of that is actually from the John Peel session as well. Yes, you've got the John Peel blessing. So when did you know? Because there was the famous film made with everybody in '73 oh. down in Suffolk land. <laughs> How did that come about? Because obviously, because you probably are aware, there was the great sort of East Anglian fairs, weren't there? The Barsham Fair in, I think it was 71 or 72. Yeah. So there was this kind of yeah. kind of feeling of like, wow, we're all going to be medieval people on a in a field and start, I don't know, start potteries and do basket weaving and play the loop. Yeah. So there was a very sort of, I mean, I've seen the films and it's kind of quite extraordinary what was coming, you know, came out of East Anglia at that stage, you know, from the 60s. I mean, did you fit? And the band does look like it was very much part of that. But from what you're saying, you you weren't quite part of that. You didn't resonate. Oh, no, oh, no, 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 no. No, you drew me back in. No, of course I was. <laughs> of course. We, yes. Oh, Barsham Fair. I was at Barsham Fair. Right. Oh, I sang at Barsham Fair. I was in a rabbit opera at Barsham Fair. I met my first wife. I met my first met my first wife at Barsham Fair. Oh, nice! <laughs> I think 
or I think I've spoken, well, mm, sort of, yes. Oh, yeah, no Barshams. We, but I suppose because it was more of, um, I mean, the first Barshams were very, were very, very, very non-electric, you know, like Incubus and Paddy Watts' face and things. So it was all flaming torches and things on poles. So, I mean, we used to go, I think we were more sitting around jamming with guitars and things rather than, but we were very much involved with the sort of, uh, that whole Barsham Fair, Waveney Clarion. Uh, yeah. oh, and the fact that we would do, we would be playing at things like the Bungie Mayfair. Um, and a lot, of, probably a lot of the benefits for Barsham Fair, where you were allowed electricity, we would be playing at those. Yeah. yeah on the Barsham Fair and the, other, and, and the fairs where, oh yeah, no, we used to do, yeah, no, we did quite a few of them. Yeah. So was yeah, that, yeah. but that was you not in the, the, the global trucking? Well, that was both. I mean, it was both. I mean, globally trucking, I mean, yes, but then, I mean, I was still up there in 76, 77, before, before I ran away to Berlin. Uh, um, another story. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, we, we were all, I mean, yes, because church farmhouse, church farmhouses, but, you know, you had, well, you had um because when we were living at Bar not Bar when we were living at Beehive, I mean and the whole thing was Shrub Family, like Larling. Yeah. Which did you see that film as well? Yeah. Terrible. I think I think that's actually that is where I met my but we I think we used to go on dreadful. We used to go on raiding parties and steal their women. It was awful because we were rock like and roll. We were rock and rollers. <laughs> <laughs> God. <Get> like, <clears throat> Yeah. Yes. Uh, no, we were very good friends. So I think we were all, all the, those people like Larling, um, us, uh, in, in um, first of all, when we were at uh, Beehive Cottage and Crow Hall, you know, Crow Hall? Yes, the one of the first ever communities in, in the country. Yes. Well, funnily enough, we went to look at, we went to visit Crow Hall because they were thinking of moving out. And we were looking at as a case, as a possibility of a, when we moved, when we had to move out of Beehive, we were looking at it as a possibility of the thought we it didn't come to anything, and we met them. So yeah, oh Crow Hall, uh, Larling, what else was there? And there was also a community. I don't know if it had started down in East Burgholt as well, hadn't there? Some oh other... well, that's funny enough. Now that's very strange. Well, they they had a funny they called themselves the teachers or something. Because they wrote me a letter after the glob split up and said, would you like to come and join us? And um, I thought, so, ooh, I think by this point I decided in my heart I was, I was running away to Berlin because I needed to get out, get away from, I think punk music was happening. And I thought, well, I don't quite understand this. Yes. So, <clears throat> so at the time, you know, it looked very idealistic. There were lots of couples, lots of babies, and there was a lot a great ethos of everyone pulling together um, in the honeymoon period, wasn't there? I mean, does that, I mean, at the time, you obviously all must have felt and believed it, and everyone did a lot of floaty dancing to, to extend yes. terms. But also, also, at that time, you could do it. You could actually all live in a house together, out in the sticks, for not much money, which meant that you could play and you could rehearse a lot of the time. So it was actually, as well as being idealistic, it was actually quite practical as well. You mm. know, you were in a house in the middle of nowhere, which means you could get up and play in the middle of the night. And then, yeah, pulling together. Ha ha, that's interesting. 
Oh dear, I'm going to go, oh dear, I'm going to get myself in trouble. Uh, 1970s communes. Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose we all got together because we wanted to play music. So like four of us, five of us, plus our roadies. And then of course we sort of gathered, started gathering more of a family in the fact we had girlfriends and wives. And so it probably the community developed around us rather than the band coming out of the community. Mm. But of course then it becomes indivisible but i i tell you i tell you david i oh it's a long time ago and i still get I, i'll get into trouble for this for like my friend like michael medora who said oh yeah it was really great well great times i would say it wasn't particularly that egalitarian it was quite um not misogynistic but i mean it's like i don't think in the early 70s that women had quite achieved the same degree of freedom and um, yeah, freedom that they have now. I suppose, you know, because we've got about the 1973, 74, we're talking, if we're talking about like from a women's sort of liberation point of view, women's emancipation point of view, it was like spare rib time, wasn't it? So spare rib was just coming out. So it was really early days, you know. Yeah. Um, and I would, I think, you know, yeah, the truth is that we used to go off, get in our, get in our bus and go up on tour. And then, you know, the place would be, then, then we'd come back and, oh, yeah, yeah. Then we'd sort of, oh, there'd be a nice pot of stew on the stove. And then, we'd do, oh, and then oh, all right, I've got to go and rehearse now. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, I, listen, other people would disagree with me on this. You know, um, I wouldn't say it was necessarily the most emancipated of places. No, equality was probably still a long way off, wasn't it? Well, I and also quite honestly, we were 22. We were 22, 23. We were babies. What the fuck did we know? Pardon yeah. me. You know, it's like, you know, and, and we were, and the, but the thing is, okay, take this back. Take this back to what you rooted back to, if you like, the 1967, 1967, 1967 in Chicago, it was quite male-dominated, mm. don't you think? Yeah, no, and there's been a lot of documentaries, you know, in the last 10 years I've watched, where a lot of women said, what happened to us during that time? You know, it was... Um, yeah, it was it was bad. It was quite horrendous, really. Well, it was know. sort of sort of this treading this water. So, oh, are we a part of this? Are we a part of this? Yeah. And I think, yeah, I mean, if we look at we look at now, when we look at, I mean, actually, if we look at music now, whatever we might think about music now, like women are so much more. You know, I mean, I think they're dominant. I think I think they produce the sort of they produce some of the best work, you know what I mean? The most creative work. Yes, well, it was quite different. And it was kind of weird. I mean, you might disagree with me, but there were, I mean, well, there's two things, because there was quite a few little babies in, in that film, which was quite like, I wonder what happened to them. And some of the women did look very innocent in a slightly Charles, I remember sort of, you know, watching documentaries on Charles Manson, and there was a lot of people who looked a little bit vacant. Oh. Like, 
Well, that's pushing it a bit. Don't let me, I'm not putting words into your mouth. No, um, no, uh, no, 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 not really. No, oh God, let's no, I'm not, I'm not over egging, egging that pudding of like, we were all monsters. No, 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 we were far from it. I mean, if you said boo to us, we'd probably run away. Do you know what I yes. mean? Um, no, but I would say that it was, it was, it was quite, uh, what I would say it was quite hard for a woman to have a really positive, dynamic role in that i mean amazing i mean like the women who are there have now gone on great things you know listen my wife who is on my wife who i met there is now a bestseller writer you know <laughs> <laughs> i mean I've, i'm long divorced from a long 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 time ago um but you know it, and i think i think you know she was an incredibly creative person and i think it was probably a block because she i met her at crow hall actually um and uh and then I did meet her again at Barsham, that's right. And uh, a very, very creative person. I think it was quite hard for women then to actually find a route to be really creatively expressive because like, well, I think it was, you know, it was the early seventies and it was like, it was, you know, it was, it was then, you know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. Now, now, with a lot of the bands I've interviewed, there's a five-year narrative, okay? This is mostly with, to do with a lot of bands in the 80s. They get together, you know, they're unemployed, bizarrely, even in the 80s, you know, especially Job Seekers Alliance, Enterprise Alliance, all those schemes. They play music, you know, they're young teens, they're taking drugs, they're having a great time. And especially in the 80s, there was a lot of unemployment. So being unemployed wasn't a big kind of status thing or it wasn't embarrassing. John Peel gives you a play, then you get the John Peel session, that first album, things going well. Second album, the cracks are happening in the band. Plus there's a lack of money. You're getting really bored of each other's jokes. You just don't want to see each other again. And, and then often the second, third album. So what, what was the kind of narrative with your band? Because it had a, I mean, you're hey. It's a little bit different. Yes. It's a little bit different in the fact that during the early times, I mean, we were actually, you know, we were touring a lot. We were doing a lot of colleges, driving around in our bus. People thought, you know, being incredibly minor sort of, you know, incredibly minor rock stars, incredibly minor. And so, but you're doing things like the Roundhouse, you're doing like, you know, colleges, blah, blah, blah. Not making any money. Mm. I mean, I went whole sort of winter with a pair of slippers to wear you know but I mean so we're not making any money and also people were interested in people were interested in signing us at actually quite a relatively early stage after our first year and we had a tie-up with Black Hills you know Black Hills who like um uh, who, who did who were the early Pink Floyd people Black Hill Enterprises Peter oh. Jenner Peter. Andrew King and um so we were involved you know they they were they were actually our publishers believe it or not uh i'm trying to track who my publisher is now uh because I've, I've got to find my publisher this is really strange i after years and years of being not people sort of oh oh people suddenly are sort of calling me it's like oh john would you do this oh oh who are you it's like remembering who i am so like, <laughs> oh, are you the john owen yeah uh well you know i sort of spent 30 years you know working with um people with autism and you know and sort of groups like that and um, we but because oh well it's a it's a story I do think it is it is actually publicized in a way I mean as it said oh they're the band who don't want to sign up to you know they don't want to 
be sub subsumed by a record company they want to do it i think that was the sort of grateful dead thing you know the they we can do it ourselves and blah 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 i've got to say that personally having no money uh, i would have quite liked to have signed up but um and i think what happened was that we showed such a sort of bolshy disinterest that people like record companies thought, oh, well, they're not interested. They're just a bunch of commie, hippie commies. So why should we bother with them? And I think that sort of came to bite us on the bum. Uh, so we got the album, you know, got the Truckers album out because we used to work with the Greasy Truckers and they, you know, liked us. We used to do a lot of benefits and things for them. Um, and the last album, when we were doing it, uh, which we did at Rockfield, um, I mean, it didn't actually come out till after we'd split up. Right. Uh, it came out when it came out of Virgin on you know, Caroline. And I think, I think you're, there's a certain essence of what you're right. I think, I mean, I've, um, personnel changed, I suppose. When we did the Gong tour, because we because we used to do a lot of work with Gong, a lot of work because we were on Virgin Agency, so we do a lot of work with Gong, Henry Cow, uh, all those people, and um, and uh, we were doing the Gong tour, and our guitarist Michael Medora who was with us, who was the man who came and said, oh, you've got to come down and decided he'd had enough. And he, and he, and he, he tells the story actually, and he won't mind me saying, he said, because a mate of his had got, he was playing with, I don't know, Vinegar Joe or something or something like that, or something like that. Somebody who was sort of, you know, touring and doing okay. And he said, well, what's it like, you know, getting out and going on tours on world? And he said, well, the thing is, you don't really see the world. You see hotel rooms, you see stages and blah, blah, blah. And Michael was actually just so terrified by the thoughts. He didn't want us alive that he left and ran away to Brazil. And, and he didn't, you know, and I think for me, the, the sort of heart fell out of the band a little bit. I mean, you know, we had, funny enough, I mean, we were, <laughs> he, he was replaced by John Etheridge. <laughs> which was very, very bizarre. Uh, you know John Etheridge? Yes. Yeah. And, um, and it's very funny because we, Michael, John Etheridge, we knew him. We knew him because we, we knew him vaguely and we'd done things when he played in Wolf. And um, we, we had contradicts because I think I, I said, I think I had a slight mutual, not particularly liking of, um, what's his name? The violinist, the violinist, Daryl Wayne, and uh, and John, John's. He was funny because I don't think it was his favourite band, but it was he was okay. And then he left; it all split up, or he, he packed it. And then he was he was out of work. And then when Michael went off to Brazil, and we were looking for a guitarist, and Michael said, um, "Oh well, look, I'll ask John if he knows anybody." And um, John said, "Well, what about me?" And we said, Are "You sure? Are you sure?" <laughs> I mean. I mean, John is yes, absolutely very much that way. In he said, "Yeah, yeah, 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 yeah." He said, "No, I'd really love to do it." 
and, he, and he's a lovely man. We're very, you know, good mates. And um, I mean, this story, this story, I'm not saying anything new because he says the same, exactly the same story. In on, I was watching him say on a video interview, said exactly the same thing. So he came to join us, and um, so we went on the gong tour. And when two weeks, he was scouted secretly by Soft Machine. <laughs> so Soft Machine came to see him at Swindon, and um, they were playing with the Global East Trucking Company, which was much more sort of rock, sort of bar, not really. Although, actually, I think our keyboard player was getting quite into it. Um, uh, and, um, and so he, 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 and so he, and then, and he had to start the next week. So he was gone. So he, he funny enough, he replaced it. He recommended another guitarist, which I sat up two nights teaching him a set, who was, who was dreadful. I, so I don't know why. He just didn't fit. No, I just it didn't get on. And then we, so we had... To, three different guitarists on that, John, and then this other guy, I can't remember his name, and then Peter Kirtley, who was again from like the sort of Geordie connection from uh, Udi Playway through, because Colin Gibson was with us a while, you know, Colin Gibson, who was with, uh, he was with Air Force. Right, yeah. Bass player, and he was with all the way, and Skip Bipperty, and, um, and he was, uh, oh, that's a bit later, in it? And so, so Peter came to join So I just think, I think we cooked our own goose in the fact that we, we, you know, we were offered, we were offered deals. We were offered publishing deals. Oh, well, we're publishing deal. Yep, blah, blah. yep, we'll get you a record label. Don't worry, we'll get that sorted. And they said, no, we don't, we don't want to do it. We are, we're independent. We live in our commune. We can do it. And um, I think it really... Uh, didn't actually do us from that point of view any favours. You know yes, I, mean? I, I suppose you, you eventually have to feel like you're making a little bit of progress. So did you have a moment with the key members of the band and you sat down and said, to quote Jim Morrison, this is the end? Yes. Did you? Where did you have that moment? Megan Fair. Megan Fair, nice. Megan Fair, do you know Megan Fair? No, I have never come across Megan Fair. Megan Fair is again one of those little gatherings, sort of tribal gatherings in the middle of the Pacelli Mountains where we go every every year and play. So we were still doing things like that. And I think we just decided that um, we couldn't, because you didn't make a lot of money from gigging, you 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 know, you spent quite a lot of money traveling around um we weren't running at a profit per se we weren't particularly getting paid um and i, I think it was probably i think it was probably me and also at, by that point i no longer lived in suffolk i'd moved to london so i think maybe it sort of finished because we decided we don't have to all live in the same place in order to be in this band. And I'd moved down to, and sort of Johnny McKenzie had moved down to London as well, I think. Um, ironically, when the band split up, I moved back, I, I actually moved back up to Suffolk and lived there for another couple of years before I left. But I was doing, that's when I used to be going to met when I did my, my cycle ride from uh, Southerton to Halesworth every week to sign on. 
Liverpool. Right. Club. Last time I signed on, last time I signed on, 1977. I haven't signed on ever since. I'm very, <laughs> yeah. very proud. So you you actually had a few wilderness years in Suffolk between band well, and the next part of your life. Not many. Well, I a little bit. I mean, I was doing. I'm no. I was playing. I was playing. I I buddied up. I was playing with some very good people. Um, uh, not Michael because he'd gone off. I'd still playing with Simon. I played a lot playing with um, Jack Monk. No, Jack Monk. Uh, Cambridge man, radar favourites, delivery. His um, his his big claim to what's he had did the last gig in the All Scars with Sid. Um, uh, he was a mate of Sid, uh, and um, so he's very much from that Cambridge scene. Uh, so Jack Monk and uh, and Stevie Corduna, Stevie Corduna from a band called Byzantium, uh, who's a fantastic drummer, one of those wonderful. They're a great band. Look them yeah. up, Byzantium. So yeah. Was, so being in Suffolk and then sort of '77, because you had we'd had the kind of the glory years of the Barsham Fairs and the Albion Fairs. So again, they well, had they, but they definitely had their glory moment between '71, '72 to '75, and then things changed again because obviously, you know, the Barsham Fair changed and there was other fairs around the world. But there was a, a country county. But then there was definitely a feeling that that shifted. And then there was like you'd had sort of heavy metal, you'd had glam rock, you had prog rock, then obviously punk rock, which is going to knock a lot of bands out. So did you at that time in 77 feel a little bit like things had changed? And also you, you were no longer 22, were you? No, fun enough. That's just the choices I had. I um, was offered this, offered this job with um, Steve Broughton, Edgar's brother. Edgar Broughton, you know the Edgar Broughton band? Yes. And I decided to go off to um, Berlin. I did think I was going to Berlin because I had an old girlfriend who I knew really from my days when I was 16, 17, she was like my girlfriend. And, uh, and she'd gone off to live in Hamburg and then Berlin. And she used to come and she said, oh, you should come to Berlin. It's a really great place. You can play music and you can live really cheaply, blah, blah. And I said, oh, good, that really get me out. That sounds like a good thing to do. And, and it was great because she, she was like, the closest, there wasn't really anything to go, but she was closest thing to, she was a sister to me. But I, I, like, I had a place to stay. So I said, oh, go to Berlin. Her, she spoke German. And Berlin, because Berlin, this is, of course, before, the, before this is 78, 79-ish, whatever, 78, before the wall came down, because it was this tiny little place. Yeah. And, well, um, and I just, just going off, Sorry. Steve Broughton thing was like, he, he bankrupted me up. And um, I said, oh, we've got this tour to go into uh, Scandinavia with uh, without Edgar. So, like, they want me to go and be the singer in the... Edgar Broughton band, but without Edgar, and they were going off to um, Sweden uh, and Scandinavia. There wasn't much money in it, but it would it could lead to things. But so, funnily enough, rather than get involved in another band, which I don't know if it'd come to a thing at anything, I'm sure they did. And Steve, you know, do some session stuff. I decided no, I decided to sort of break out and go and go on my own to Berlin. Sorry, I've interrupted you. No, I was just going to say that in a little bit of context, because I had 
a friend, and he um, had a friend once, yes, but his brother, who was about seven years older than me, in the 80s, there was a whole gang of people from Norwich all went to Berlin because it was uh, really easy living. You could get a job on the base, uh, you know, the American. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and also at the time, just to put it into some context, I'm sure people know this, but you had to do national service if you were in Germany, but if you went to Berlin, you didn't have to do national service. So all the, you know, the punks and anarchists went, right, we're going to Berlin. So it became this kind of, you know, this kind of cultural hotbed, really, didn't it, of people who... Yes, that was what I was just about to tell you. Yes, it was. I mean, yes, of course, it was also the times where you couldn't uh, go across. I mean, one of the first time I went across, I went from the hook of Holland on the train where you had to trundle through East Germany at 20 miles an hour. And like, and they come right, and you couldn't, you know, I, did I still have longish hair then? No, I didn't really have long hair, but I was bearded and I looked that way. You couldn't help but look at like one of the bloody people on that bar to mine hop you know, and um, it was an interesting place. Um, there were, inter- and as you say, there were people who were of a more uh, would come up from Bavaria, Munich, who would, and if you got to Berlin, you didn't have to do national service uh, because there was this whole myth that they were terrified that the tanks were going to come over the wall, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I don't think they would. And because of this, food came in. It was really cheap to live. Um, I shared a flat in Kreuzberg where, you know, where the, where the factory squats were. I was in a block. I didn't live in a factory squat. I didn't live in a squat. We paid rent class. But it's where the factory squats were. And, like, um, so I used to go and visit them. I don't, I mean, I wasn't particularly political. Did a lot of talking and stuff. Um, and you would run across people that you weren't quite sure who you knew they were, who they were. Um, uh, I must say that, uh, I mean... It was great. I mean, I was there two years, two and a half years on and off. I used to come home and then go back. Um, uh, well, I went back because there was an offer of some recording thing I was doing, which didn't come to anything. I actually went to Hansa Studio one day, believe it or not, where um, I feel love, I feel love, the Donna Summer Studio. And, uh, and um, it didn't come to anything. But And also it was great. It was easy to make. I'm living as a musician. There weren't any bands because it was too small. So there'd be lots of acoustic groups or folk groups or things like this, all running around doing a half an hour set here and a half an hour set there, starting up at half past. And you get paid not much, 10 marks, 20 marks once you'd been there, once you'd become, which was not much, it was about 20 quid, right? But this is the late 80s, late 70s. So, and you'd be doing a few of these and you'd like do that one. And then you'd have a couple of drinks and you'd rush off and then you might have the bloody half past four gig at the Steve Club. So you'd be hanging around, you'd have your two. And then you'd sort of do that one. And then, of course, you'd all go around the Banana Club to have an after after work drink. And there would be all the musicians, lots of Americans, lots of um, uh, lots of South Germans playing sort of finger style um, uh, country. Stefan Sur, he was great. Um, and, um, and Irish musicians, yeah, Irish musicians, American musicians, and English musicians who'd all gather together and just like, oh, drink a lot. It was terrible. Yeah. I, and I, I, was, I did stop seeing daylight, which is why I am. Um, and it was a great place to busk as well, because it, it, then it had a wonderful currency, the Mark Stuck, which was worth, you know, so you could actually, you, it was a very, very, nice place to make a living 
Yes. So like David Bowie, who decided to escape L.A. because of... Well, well I, didn't go, I don't think I moved in the same circles quite. But, but he went to Berlin at the same time and the Hansel studio to record his heroes. So you were doing a very similar trip there. Then, then what happened? Did you then decide in the 80s it was time to come back? It was, yeah. And then that, actually, I wanted to go, that was far more my wilderness years, actually. Back. I came back. I did some gigs. I did, I did, I used to do incredibly obscure, oh, gigs up in Suffolk and like on my own. And again, I did, uh, and I, I played the band again with, 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 um, oh, with, with, uh, funny enough, I found a track the other day. I just found we played a festival, at Otmore Festival in about 1984. And I've just, somebody sent me the cassette. From this, and it's actually great. And it's, uh, I think, oh God, this is actually the most anarchic band I was in. It was just me and Michael, because he'd come back from Brazil, and and, Je and Jack Monk and um, Stevie Cordula doing a lot of Montuno stuff because Michael had come back to South America and said, and he'd been playing in the surface band and playing salsa. Um, <laughs> but I really, and I suppose in the later 80s, I sort of went into my slight. A slump, and I, I unfortunately took a job driving a van for about, and well, I had, I owned a van, so I unfortunately I was in London, and I unfortunately sort of like went to work for a mini cab company, and then started driving habitat furniture around, and made such sort of a, a reasonable living at it that I was sort of like, oh god, oh, and I was, I, I think that's my wilderness years. I think right. I stopped. I don't think I played the guitar for about three years until I suddenly decided, oh, this is ridiculous. And I started, um, oh, well, I met a man, I did, actually, I met a man, funnily enough, this is back to my Suffolk connections, actually. It was my Suffolk connections, which sort of revitalized. I used to go up there, because I somebody I used to know in, who lived in uh, Raiden, Southwold, and her brother-in-law was a man called David Drain. And um, he wrote plays and poetry. And I did go up very straight. I do, do this very obscure little gig in the middle of, oh, Sotterley Pavilion. Sotterley Pavilion, which is up there somewhere. You should know it. You should investigate these plays, David. Yes. They're, a part of, they're a part of the mythology. Sotterley Pavilion. like, uh, And um, with Hank Wangford. With Hank Wangford was playing it. And... Um, and uh, this guy, David, came and saw me. And he saw me playing on my own. And he was suddenly taken with me for some reason. And he thought, oh, this is the man who can write the music to my songs. And he started send, sending me these poems and lyrics through the post and these plays. And I ended up doing, I went up was a bit earlier, late, no, 86-ish, something like that was, I think. I can't remember exactly, but 87. And um, and we, so we did this huge, huge, big pro-am event at um, Snake Maltings. Nice, classy. Which was, but, but it wasn't, when we say Snake Maltings, I'm not saying Snake Maltings. This was really in a disused Maltings house. It's before they were all done up. Right. We converted, we was converted this Maltings house into a big theatre. I know I was up on a shelf surrounded by molasses and bat poo. Uh, and also I had to be in it. So I was this new, so I was in this play, this huge play called Swan Killer. 
and um, which went on. We had about ten professional actors in it, um, and um, oh, including what's his face, who was in oh, I can't remember his name, um, and uh, and a director crew, and I went up to write the music, and I, that's where I met a guy called Adrian Jackson who then, who he, he was a bit out of work and he was sort of doing this play and he put a lot of money, I think he lost a lot of money on it, but it was a huge prime event where I went and did workshops with students all over the place and it had a cast of 60, right? And it had airships falling from the ceilings and puppets, giant puppets swinging. It was a very, very huge event. But the, you can get the play, it's called Swan Killer. It's worth a read. And... Um, so I did this and I sort of got into and then because of that I met Adrian Jackson and then he went and then he suddenly rang me back later because he got a job he went to work at the bubble theatre you yeah. know the bubble the bubble theatre based in Southwark and he said John John you were great so great doing those workshops would you go do some workshops with people down in um down in so I did so I sort of sort of got into that work and it's sort of a direction I've sort of been working in ever since so that I've now I work with you know I've worked with um did a lot of work with cardboard citizens um uh and um a lot of work with youth offending teams and then I've got into doing work with early years and uh, with parents and family using music but using music as a way of expressing oneself not I'm not music therapy but you know unlike a lot of my work which Oh, it'd be lovely. I mean, I'll send you some stuff, Dave, with some, some of the work I've done. The trouble is, with a lot of the work I've done over the last 30 years, and I have, I've been producing stuff, it's sort of stuff that nobody's allowed to listen to because it's done with vulnerable groups. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I work a lot with people, I, you know, I work a lot with people in prisons, in psychiatric units, and uh, with people with... Um, learning disabilities and uh, occasionally I've worked with actors. I did work with, um, I did, you know, I did work, mainstream work with the bubble and also did some work at the Lyric Theatre in Hammersmith. And there I did projects working with Shawstart, again with, with parents and young children, actually getting them to create songs and me, so they would write poems and things and I'd help them, we'd set it to music and create sort of, banks of music which they'd use or discuss and like another project I did with um in Essex I did a lot of work in Essex I worked with this company called Theatre Resource in Onga where I was working um with the children's rights department where I worked with young people who were leaving care um because it's a big issue about you know young people who are leaving care because they're just you know chucked out when they're 18 whoosh you're on your own and um and I was doing a lot of work with them where I was doing workshops and doing writing, lyric writing. And um, then produced, we produced, um, produced an album with them saying what they wanted to say and me finding, actually, I was much more a composer then because they, I was, my job was to set their music, set their words to music with them. You're not, not tread on them all over the place because they'd record and then they'd record or they might record something a cappella, and then I set it to music. And, um, and the whole idea was that it was used as a sort of uh, learning instruction tool to be played as a training tool for social workers and probation officers and people like that, so they could listen to what these young people wanted them to wanted what wanted to say to them. 
So yeah. that's a lot of work. And another project I did was with with unaccompanied minors up in um, up in Hertfordshire, where I was working with young, uh, really seventeen year olds, sixteen year olds who come from um, Iraq, Kurdish, mainly Kurdish young men, and and a couple of Somalian young men. When I was working with them, and we were they were writing and they were singing me stuff. I'd take recording stuff off. Um, I there's one up there. I don't know if you can maybe I'll play a little snippet. And uh, uh, where they'd sing me songs and I'd go home and write the music for their songs. And so we'd produce these these albums together. So it's like, um, yeah, 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 yeah. And then we'd have, um, yeah, it was all about, I don't know, self-esteem, self-esteem. And gradually more and more and more over the past 15 years, I've... Um, more specialised in working with people with learning disabilities, young people with learning disabilities. And I, so the past nine, 10 years, I think, I think I'm, I'm a, such a natural bloody freelancer, you see, David. It's like, so how do you learn how to do that? Well, somebody asked, somebody gave me a job doing it, so I had to learn it quick. <laughs> you know what I mean? Ooh, how did you learn to edit video? Well, uh, or, you know, I just had to, because I just had to get it. It's like where people, it's like people, I mean, because I work and I now work with a lot of young people with autism from early ages, like across the spectrum, right, early age from three-year-olds, four-year-olds up to sort of 18-year-olds with people with autism and special and uh, profound and learning, profound learning disabilities. But my, and this is, this is actually, this is a, a nice little interesting loop back for you, this David, because... People always say, John, where did you train to do this work? And I said, well, I trained to do this work by, um, I can't give the whole story because it's a bit, you know. Uh, no, I can't. Well, I learned, I learned this by living in a commune with people, play, being the front man in the band and staying up all night and jamming. That's where I learned how to do this work because so much of my work with these young people is being about, uh learner led and me so you know i i'm an i'm an improviser yeah. so some i'm in there and we we create music from it you know and i i now work with and i'm so lucky in the fact that as i say i'm so lucky that i make a living out of music and i play with some of the most who i consider some of those wonderful musical people the young people I work with, not necessarily as we know it, Jim, and that we can create stuff together. And I don't, yeah, and I earn, you know, I've earned a living out of music doing that. And yes. I'm very, 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 I'm all, I'm, well, God, I don't use the word, I'm sort of quite proud of doing that, you know what I mean? And, um, and I still do, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I get a lot of joy out of it. I mean, that's what I've been, and funnily enough, but what I've been doing this week, um, it, it's like you coming back, and because uh, I was suddenly somebody got a, I suddenly got an email out of the blue uh, last month from a guy. Many years ago, there was an album called Miniatures. Um, it, that came about 1980, and it was compiled by a guy called Morgan Fisher, who used to be in Mop the Hoople. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and he got into sort of avant-garde 
more sort of avant-garde and he created this album called Miniatures and on it there were 50, 50 minute long tracks and he invited people to contribute these minute long tracks. And on the first one you've got like, you know, you've got Robert Fripp, oh, Meredith, what's Meredith Monk, uh, John Otway, oh, all that. I mean, look it up because it's actually quite... Ooh. And then they did another one 20 years ago and they're doing another one. And I'm very, it's like suddenly being remembered. Oh, what do you think, John? Somebody so said, John, uh, just saw you, saw you, I don't know. I think they saw something maybe I put on Facebook. I mean, I don't really, you know, I do go out and do gigs now. I do gigs now with my lads who are very, very fine musicians. Um, uh, and um, not at the moment, but yeah. And um, but they have to drag me out. And uh, so somebody said, and he said, oh, be really good. Really like you to contribute to this um, to this album, this next album we're doing. We're doing another, you know, anniversary, the 40th anniversary of this album, which is coming out soon. And I've got to send it off tomorrow. Um, <laughs> I've been prevaricating about what to do, what to do. It's a bit of a secret what I'm doing, but what I'm doing is actually very, very much allied to the work I do with young people. As one young, there's one young person I work with, I've been working with for eight years and he has mitochondrial disease. And he really is, I don't, you know mitochondrial disease? No, mitochondrial. Sorry, every, every, it's like the electric spark in every cell of your body is sort of switched off. This is a crude layman's term way of putting it. But it says the electric charge is gone. And it's a spectrum. And he is up the upper end of the spectrum. He is really like a locked in little boy, or he was when I first met him. And I first met him eight years ago. And, um, and then, cause I now I work, I'm based mainly at a school. I work in a school, I'm still self-employed. So I do other things, but I work in a school called um, Greenside School up in uh, Stevenage. Uh, where I, I, well, I was basically, I was, I was working on a creative partnerships project. You remember creative partnerships, the arts council. So yes. They got creative people, the gravy train. Uh, yeah, well, sort of. I never did indulge it. And I was done a project at this school, which is 18 project. It came to an end. They said, oh, John, we see you doing things that we've never seen anybody else do before. We don't. That's because I make it up. They think I make it up as I go along. And, uh, so would you carry on? And it was so I've been sort of been there on and off. Well, I've been there working one day turned into two, turned into three. And it's so lovely because I've spent so many of my years being a freelancer. I don't know. I mean, is, is what you do now, what you've, what you've all done, always done, or have you done something else before? I've done something else before. Yes. Yeah. Are you, did you work or were you a freelancer? Work, yes. Right. But I've, 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 all, I've never had a proper job in my life, David. I've That's... always been a freelancer. I've never had a PAY job in my life, ever. Which is why I went to school. What have you got? Oh, no, 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 no. I've got to keep my schedule deep, my, my, you know. And um, so I'm a natural freelancer. And it's like, of, of all the years when I was doing it, then you'd be doing projects, you'd be working somewhere for three weeks, You'd be working with these people, but and then you'd leave, and then you'd never see them again. So for me, the continuity of working in a place where I've seen people 
from that grow up a bit. It's actually been really quite a nice thing for me. Yes. And uh, you know, this so this lad, Charlie, Charlie, Charlie Pop, Charlie Chops. Uh, I the head teacher said, "Oh, John," because he, he their teacher treats me. He treated me a bit like a sort of uh, creative troubleshooter. We got some kid who didn't know, you know, there was sort of like, oh, uh, you know, because. Well, there's quite challenging young people, which is, you know, you go to some special schools and you can say, well, I'm not quite sure why you're here. This school, you know, it's like quite a high rating of up the spectrum autism and other sort of akin things. And um, and he took me to this this lad who was at home. He didn't go to school. He tried to go to school. He wasn't, he wasn't working. I met Charlie and he needed his chair and he's very locked up and his hands sort of like that. And, he sees it a lot and it's mitochondrial. Said, so, okay, this is Charlie. Do you think you can do anything? Oh, okay, Dave. And he knows because I'll sit there and think. I'll sit yeah. there and think, right, okay. So I, so I sort of probably picked up my kalimba, you know. I sat and played my kalimba, you know, which I play a lot. And, um, and I managed to hook his fingers over my hands, which were quite that sang to him. I can't say what I sang to him because that spoiled the surprise was to be on this miniature scene. I sang to him. Sometimes I do. Well, it could be a spoonful of sugar. It could be a spoonful of tea. It could be a spoon of your precious love and that's good enough for me. Everybody's wild about it. That spoonful, that spoonful. And so I play, I play the, I play the kalimba too, and his hands came unrelaxed, and he went like that. And this is how we know when Charlie, this is how he communicates to us, by relaxing, he's non-verbal. We don't know what's going on, you know, as his mum said, I said, is anything I should, she said, we, we don't know. And now, now he was four, and now I've been seeing him every week and he was uh, 13 a couple of weeks ago and I still go, well, funnily enough, that's one of my FaceTime things. I still, I, I set up and I play Kalimba to him over FaceTime um, uh, twice or three times a week. So that's, that's sort of some of the work I do as well. Amazing, amazing. Well, look, so, so I was just gonna say, I mean, there has been the old little reunion, which is just kind of okay, isn't it? I mean, was that kind of just briefly? Was that quite a nice experience when you you did a, you know that reunion gig? We did Glastonbury in two thousand eight, didn't we? Yes. Uh, after the after the second film, uh, did you see the second film? Yes, then? I saw. Oh the God, yeah. Right. Well, okay. Yeah. No, I don't. I thought I came across like a total arsehole in it. Actually, um, uh, I think people say I didn't, but it's like. Oh, you can't, you cannot trust filmmakers. They're not journalists, but they're, you know, because they edit things how they want them to be. It's like, you know, they sat in my, you know, that's, oh, I wanted to be a rock star. I wanted to be a rock star. And I thought, what? You put me, like, I wanted to be a rock star. And it was a sort of slight joking thing I said, surrounded by all the other said I said, and they just picked it out and put it on the telly on their bloody you know trailer they got I wanted and I thought oh god you know I didn't really want to be a rock star I wanted to be somebody who could make a living out of music you know what I mean mm. 
and 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 use me enjoy playing music and being a rock star wasn't it but yeah yeah it's a funny but we did we did um we did play Glastonbury we did a few other things um and I think and then we did play a wedding actually what a few years ago we played a wedding again that was another sort of another uh uh, another uh, another lasso. Jimmy's brother, James's brother, not glad he called him Jimmy anymore. He's James Lassels now, isn't he? Um, and uh, oh, he's a bit barky. Have you seen his show? His, his, his YouTube things he does? No. All right. He puts him on Facebook. Well, look up. James Lassels. He lives there. I haven't seen him for a while. I do see, we meet up every now and we have a jam and we really enjoy, you know, but he, because he plays with Cockney Rebel now. Yes. Yeah, and um, so yeah, we did. I think there was certain uh, that, oh god, how can I put it? There were certain fallings out, and this wasn't me at all. If anything, I was a person. Listen, I'm a trained neighbourhood mediator, um, and I work with you know. Uh, there were certain issues that made it not possible for us to play right bloody hell so you because normally people have that thing of being supercharged oh, they pardon they happened afterwards right yeah god which i i don't want to go into because they're a bit uh because i don't have the people the permission but i just think there were certain sort of um uh, you know and um yeah, well, he woke up now because bless him, because John's gone. John's dead, isn't he? John's died. Yeah. Um, which was uh, awful. Yeah, I was very pleased. I did. I was in communication. Yeah, I didn't. We didn't see much a great deal, but I was like, I suppose because we did have that incredible, intense living together. It's I. Like, I think it's not like being friends. It's like sort of eating eating drinking and shitting together you know it's that sort of uh, you know mm. being in a and like and we did have that sort of and like what you brought up the kids actually because you about the children in that um in that documentary and they are actually probably more bonded with each other than we are like dylan dylan who was like the bigger blonder boy yeah he's like he he's a he's a sort of DJ and house music uh, producer, uh, Mutiny UK. Uh, he's very big. He, he's he's asked me to go over to Ireland and do some singing on his on his solo album. So I really I'm I'm really I'm actually really enjoy. I'm going down for two days next term, and I really want to get out there and play music again. I'll come up and do a set. I'll come up and do a set, David. Yeah. When we're um, I'd love to. Uh, and with my lads, you know. And I really decided that I want to get back into music again and actual playing. So what happened to the other child baby in the, from the film? Which one? The one who was very small and there was a long-haired guy and his kind of partner saying, we're just all going to look after the children together. Ah, Rue. Ah, ooh, that Kanga. Ah, Rody. I don't know. He lives in America. Um... They all, and my daughter, of course, my daughter was was born not at um, not not at uh, Beehive, but when we moved to um, Church Farmhouse, near. So, 
my daughter was actually born in, in the in then there so she was actually born in the commune and she's still they're all still quite bonded they all not necessarily live in each other's pocket but they're all because now we can do that on with things like facebook yeah. so, you know i have friends who i haven't seen for 40 years who i'm really quite chummy with who in south africa or new zealand or which is the wonderful thing nice thing about it we i mean it, it's it's it has its evil things but i mean it is quite nice for that so i think those kids and they all actually read because i mean the commune went on after the band split up it went on for another seven probably years i don't know i was there but then i went off to berlin and then i came back and i used to pop up there to visit but I mean, by that time there was a maybe more of an overlap it wasn't about but well james used to because james still lived up there partly yeah. and so up to rehearse with his band with cooker with mike's story and um whoever was it with which he was playing before well, before he was in the breakfast band i think i don't know if he went up there because i'd sort of slightly lost touch with well this before because then he he went to live in um new mexico didn't he he went he, he fled to america we all fled suddenly <laughs> Michael simon the drummer's lived in rio for the past 35 years um and uh comes back and he said he, when he's coming over he said, oh, I'm coming back uh, uh, could you hire me a drum kit so we can do some jamming we say oh you don't believe in drum kit what yeah, no. he's, you know he's not short of a bob or two and um and it's like uh, yeah so we do we do see each other and there's not it's not like I don't want you to get the wrong idea of what I've said there was just certain things that made possible for us to play together I mean we do I play with Michael I mean Michael lives down he lives about half a mile down the road from me, so we get together yes. quite often. But now he's he's a world he's a world cutting edge holographer. He makes holograms and just deals with people like um, you know, Microsoft and and Huawei if he's allowed to any we and well and like people Apple. So he's always jetting across the world to have meetings. I I don't really know what he does, but I know he, <laughs> he hires PhDs and I wouldn't I I I tell him, I tell him I wouldn't trust him to wire a plug in my house, but he works with the most powerful lasers in Europe. Um, yeah, so... Um, and did, yeah. You have a, did you have a young manager who went on to being sort of a big... Yeah. Who was he? Jeremy. Jeremy Lassels. Right, that was Jeremy. He was... Uh, he now owns Chrysalis. He owns Chrysalis Records. I think. Boy. I don't know. That I is. saw him. I saw him, funnily enough, I saw him. Last time I saw him was a party last year. It was a garden party, believe it or not, <laughs> run by, it was Martin Mills Garden Party. Martin Mills is a guy who, who owns Beggar's, Beggar's Banquet. Beg, well, it used to be Beggar's Banquet. It's now Beggar's whatever it is. So he's like the biggest independent record man in the world and i just happened so happened that i went to school with him <laughs> and i just i'd meet we meet up every now and then and my back to my oxford days we just have this reunion of people i went to school with the college and martin has this garden party and that was the last time with jeremy because jeremy of course is full of like music biz people who i have not a lot in common with particularly um and uh it's well i suppose i do in a way but it's not it's not really a world i'm interested in you know yeah. what i mean 
I, 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 you know, I, uh, and um, it's, it's ironic, isn't it an irony? Because those many years ago, when we lived in that commune and people said, okay, um, we don't want to, you know, we're going to do it ourselves and we're going to be a commune in self-sufficient. It was me, probably because I came from a, I don't know, didn't have a lot of money, didn't have blah, 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 blah. I actually really quite wanted a bit of security then and say, oh, well, why, you know, can't we, you know, like what's wrong with getting a record deal and getting some music out so that we can start. Maybe some people needed to make more money, made it, needed to make money more than others did. Yes. Um, what's that John Peel said about those, those uh, rich hippies in, those rich hippies in Suffolk, didn't he? That yes. was a quote. Somebody said to me about him the other day, actually, yeah. Uh, I wasn't one of them. Um, but funny, ironically, after it, now I've, I've, I've actually not particularly interested in that. I really want to play some music again. And I want, but now, it's, it, and then there's another irony in the fact that now, then if you, you had to get in a bloody bus and drive somewhere, drive to a field and hope 10 men and a dog would be there and you'd get there and you have to build up something like that. Now you can, you shove it out on the internet. And you yeah. have a sort of, I mean, my son, who's a much better singer than me, get him on. Um, my son is a much better singer than me. And he's sort of, you know, he's not, he's only 19, but, you know, he's got people who, he's apparently he's making a bit of a, making a bit of a stir in Thailand. I mean, not much, you know, he's not making much money. And he just shoves, he just writes songs, records them and just puts them up, you know. And, yeah. and you can do that. It's fantastic. Well, I think yeah. one hopes. Yes. Well, I was just going to say, well, just almost lastly, but it was an interesting thing you touched on, the class thing, because obviously I noticed Ooh. that the, the early fairs, there was a lot of people who ran those fairs who were part Ooh. of the organising, who would come, who came from a very wealthy background or a, quite a privileged background. A lot of them went to Oxford or Cambridge University did their kind of years doing their thing and then went, great, you know, we sat around, smoked dope and went, okay, we've had enough of this. Now we're going to get the, you know, we're going to become an executive in this company and that company. So it's kind of interesting because I've often wondered about that element of life. Does that... Does oh, that... God, can of worms, can of worms. This is not, this is, oh, David, this is not your angle for this, is it? No, Jesus, no. Well, that's what I thought it was, if I thought it was, I'd say piss off now because yeah. I'm not really interested in raking up stuff. Oh, like no, that. no, but I'm not, I'm not. We were, we were all who we were, do you know what I mean? And sometimes I feel guilty for living in a house which was owned, which was paid for by a house, especially in these days, like, you know, uh, you know, the slave trade and all that. Like, you know, there were, the aristocracy cannot help but be steeped in it back somewhere. Do you know what I mean? So yes, I yeah. only think, oh, God, blimey. But we were 22, 23. There were, there were, well, I think there were quite genuinely people, genuine people. I mean, what? Keith Payne, you know, Keith Payne. Yes. No, come on. If you, if you if research Barsh and Bears, right, you must have come across that name, yeah. Keith Payne. Who, who made Caravan. I mean, he lives now. I'm sure, you know, I'm sure he's got a thing that I'm a friend of his on Facebook. I haven't seen him in years. And he lives over in County Wicklow. 
and sort of, you know, still makes caravans and, you know, it was a light, it was what he wanted to do. I mean, he did commercial work, but him and his company, they made those inflatables and things. Yes. And they made a killing because they made the inflatables, inflatables for animals, right? And the Rolling Stones. Exactly. So they, you know, so whether, whether, but then because they came to them because they were doing a good thing. And in some ways, isn't it backwards? Because like commerciality will catch you up. It's like, don't you think that every subculture, well, not every, but a subculture gets along and it gets subsumed into the mainstream. And I think we managed to keep whatever positivity there was going that we can. I mean, you know, the 70s, the early 70s, it meant that we could, young people maybe felt a little bit more free to stand up and say, hey, I can do this, I'm going to go and live where I want to and do what I want to. Although now it's really hard again. I mean, like my friend Michael, we always say, Jesus, I'm, I'm glad to have grown up when I, I don't know whether, what you're a little bit, I mean, you're 15 years younger than me. Um, whether you feel that you grew up in an age where you had a relative freedom to do what you wanted to do, I don't know. Do you? I suppose, no, actually, I suppose in a way, looking back at the 80s, we, you know, it's interesting because I now look, I now realise, I see people reminiscing about the 80s. And I remember thinking, actually, okay, the music was great. We saw a lot of great bands. There was a lot of good events. But I can remember we sat around and moaned a lot about everything and complained. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, we were, we were, and, you know, and it was one of those ones, you know, we, a lot of people were unemployed for various reasons, partly because I think people were quite lazy. There was the sort of a bit of an anarchist attitude. You know, it was quite easy to sign on for a few years and then we get What's a bit bored. Yeah, it was very easy in those days. You'd had to go and do a restart interview every so often and you would go and sit around for a couple of days and they go, okay, you know, that will be that for six months. Ah, and then you... Because me and Michael have this theory that that all sort of, ha that sort of ended in 1979. No, it still I, drifted I probably, on. Probably a, I probably took a while to set in. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, things kept I mean, changing. Like, you know, in the 50s, I mean, the 50s, I mean, I was really, really, really a kid in the 50s. I mean, I was born in, you know... Well, I was born in 49, bloody hell, you know what I mean? But it's, uh, and the 50s, although people think of it as being, oh God, you know, Anthony Eden, Suez and blah, 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 blah. It was actually quite, quite a, uh, and it sounds sort of like ox an oxymoron to say it was quite a liberal society, but it, cause it wasn't, but it was quite a safe society. And the 60s, even though it was shaken up, it was shaken up, and I think that the, the social events that shook it up, it was still quite safe. And like, and then the seventies, Michael could say to me, "Oh, come on, come on, you can come to this house, you can sign on, they won't bother you," you know. And I could, you know, and uh, I could do it, and we were so we could sit in a house and play music. Uh, but you think it was more like that? No, I mean, I suppose the eighties. I suppose the eighties was represented me by. Um, Half man, half biscuit. Yes. Half man. <laughs> I, lo I love, I love, I love half man. Half yeah. Biscuit. So, well, look, oh, so, so the early 80s, there was like the job seekers allowance, the enterprise allowance schemes. There was all those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so when I've spoke to a few, you know, you know, quite a lot of bands from that period who were very political, you know, we talk about 
you know what the system was like and and as i said there was a lot of things that would catch people from dropping too far down into yeah. the, to the gutters and onto the streets because you didn't really get many people living on the streets like you do now and i think there was a lot more safety nets that people would get caught there's like don't worry you, you know you're going to be fine we'll put you back up and you'll be sorted you know whereas now i don't think the safety nets are there i think people just go oh shit you're right that's very interesting. that's very interesting i think might have been very much more suited to be to be 10 years younger because when you're saying like people who got together in bands in the early 80s and then it was quite much more a political thing it goes back i mean i got together and i lived with people but to me the whole sort of living together and the whole we're all part of a smiling revolution i mean uh, people when you had god you had bands we're all part of this it was actually written actually as a far with a bit more of a political edge than we're all sitting in a getting stoned we're violin revolution it's the best deal to, oh it's great and all that you know i want to be dancing on the judgment day yeah but from my point of view that, that i would have liked to actually um have the more more political thing behind them going out there as well well I you know I mean? you, I mean, not, 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 not that i was an over anarchist but i mean you know yes yeah you know i mean but i suppose you had the punk bit and then you had the rock against racism then you had the red wedge which kind of yeah. came up and you had all that kind of anger and tension so the 80s did have that and whether you, people say well it was people were putting it on it didn't really matter it was like people were were sort of desperate to you know that red wedge tour kind of created quite a big kind of movement you know interesting what you're saying because you know when you said oh god loops 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 david because when you said oh, those people in the 60s when they came 70s they got tired i think me in the 70s when he got the 80s and i came back from berlin took a job as a van driver i got tired and thought oh no i'm gonna drive a van i'm not i'm not yeah that was when that was probably the moment i got tired actually <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah so just one just one last bit then because it was kind of it ties in so many years ago here we'd in we've got some film together with the barsham fairs right and we got bruce lacy came over and a guy called richard barnes who did the book the sun in the oh, I know. so well, we I were, don't, richard barnes wrote the opera that i sang in i think no so, he just he just did this oh, no that was another guy so he did the sun in the east yeah no no it's another guy his name is richard something else yeah yes i know i've seen it yeah and of course you have Andy what's his name and um oh what was the name oh Andy and um oh come what's the name the woman who was very very I mean there were a lot of people who were sort of powerful behind it who aren't so well known as other ones who people who write books about it I mean, Bruce Lacey was a base yeah I Bruce Lacey did one of them I think he did one of the original miniatures as well actually right so so we were we were watching these films. You know, there's the film called The Last Barsham Fair. Somebody else had given me some very early film that I'd got, which no one's ever seen because someone said, "Oh, do you want to? You know, you're interested in this stuff. Watch it." And I I might send you a copy because well, I will if you want. But you'll see. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. I'm always interested. So anyway, so it's kind of interesting. We were we were watching this and talking about it and discussing it, 
And there was that guy, Simon Lofter, Lofthouse, who was the kind of guy. Simon who, Loftus, I know Simon Loftus. You know, very posh, you know, but having his life. Very. You know, very posh. Uh, well, uh, Adnams, isn't it? He owns Adnams. Yes, and got a CBE or some sort of thing. Has he really? Yes. So anyway, he got something quite big for industry. And we were sort of watching it and discussing it. And I remember Richard saying, God, you know, everyone's running around in medieval outfits, you know, in dear old Suffolk land, 75. And you're thinking, God, you know, the Ramones, the Dam, the Sex Pistols, punk was about to hit. And you got this kind of little bubble of people. And in a in hundred miles down south was all this kind of anger and tension. It felt like a different world, didn't it? Was it? I don't know. Oh, I've got to think about that. I'm not, I think, I don't know. Punk seemed to happen quite suddenly. I mean, I think it happened in the state because I would think, I would think of, you know, I would think of the, the, you know, the first punk out, the first punk, what's the first punk track? Arthur Lee. When I was a boy, but sometimes I'd be a do 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 seven and seven is, which I requested John Beale to play at the Festival of Flower Children in nine sixty seven. Um, yeah, I don't know, but then the, a lot of those people, but the, but the people who would come up from London would come up from London to Barsham Fair. You'd get like I remember like oh, when I lived down there, when I did live, even when I'd moved down to London, I used to come up to Barsham Fair and see people. And uh, all, to, all those other fairs, because there were lots of it wasn't just Barsham, because there, there were other fairs which weren't quite so, where they did plug in. You yeah. know, well, I, I, did, I did gigs at, um, ooh, with, with Canal Zone, the great, the wonderful Canal Zone, which I was playing with myself the other day. Fantastic band. Um, uh, and, um, yeah, but people used to come up from London, and you wouldn't, they weren't all well-to-do and middle-class. I mean, and not just middle-class, but a bit upper-middle-class. I mean, Simon Loftus, yeah, I, I remember Simon Loftus very well. And because he also, but he shared a house with his, um, with um, Tim, oh God, Tim oh, Hunkin. Yes. You the, know Tim Hunkin. The machines. Wonderful man, wonderful mm. man. Tim Hunkin used to drive me, he, he, he actually drove me to a few gigs in his van, actually. Yeah. Um, amazing man. I haven't seen him in a long time, but and I think Tim Hunkin was probably both a very good and a very bad influence on uh, on Simon Loftus. And, and Simon Loftus, okay, here's a connection for you. Who who took the album? Who took the cover? Who took the photograph on the front cover of the Global Village Shocking Company album? Was it Simon? Ben Loftus, Simon Loftus's brother. Um, there you go. Who's the photographer? Of course, it, it was all. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, because Simon was very much. I mean, I don't know whether he was a very quiet a sort of. Ben, I mean, he was a bit of a benefactor. I mean, but I mean, people must have put money. So people put money into those events. I mean, I suppose eventually they got sort of quite money spinning, but um, you know, in the early days they were really. Yeah. And they was, and. Uh, yeah, and they were quite, and you know, they were. Yeah, I would say it wasn't all just about going back to nature, and there were some people who were maybe more looking at it from a uh, social change point of view, in a social change for 
are better, not just not just a tangential lifestyle, but more a substantial lifestyle and of actually being wanting to be more sustainable. Well, you know, it's more sustainable, you know, yeah. sustainable, which, which is very, very, you know, it's a political, um, it's a part of the political landscape now, isn't it? I mean, well, you know. Well, we all, there, was the, there was the famous book, wasn't there? Was it John somebody, the self-sufficiency book that everyone owned? John something, Seymour or something like that. I just remember everybody had this copy of self sufficiency Yeah, 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 yeah. I didn't say that. <laughs> yeah, self-sufficiency. That's the word. Okay, uh, clearly, you know, yeah, right. And um, yeah, I mean, that were, it was very interesting days. And I must say that I would, I, I, it's great. It was great to have lived through those days. And they were very interesting days. I, they weren't all, you know, and people didn't always get on. <laughs> and people didn't get on, and you—I mean, like, oh, you know, I remember, I remember when we, oh God, Bath of the Festival. I mean, I suppose we became very much the go-to band for those things, like you know, Charlie, we had the Bath of the Festival, um, festivals. Oh, get the clubs down, they'll come. Yeah, yeah, and we used to go because we could. We were all there, and you know, we could. Um, Funny, uh, whereas you know our big break, which we were going to get, which was playing on American air bases, we totally blew. <laughs> very, it's a very funny. I'll tell you the story quickly. We got, we were going to a an audition at Alconbury, the base. Yes, Alconbury base. I mean, this is 72, 73 or seventy two, and we had to get in our coach and do it. A, the bloody thing wouldn't start. We were pushing it. By, by, you know, by Beehive Cottage. You know where Beehive Cottage is, yes. don't you? Yeah. You know who lives there now, don't you? No. Martha Carney. Oh. Yeah. Martha Carney lives there. When Michael and I went up and put a note through a letterbox once, she said, oh, she wasn't. And she said, oh, come round for tea sometime. Never have done. But it looks very nice quaffed now. It doesn't look like what well, And we were pushing it out. We got to get this as audition. Eventually we got there late and we drove into this Alconbury Air Base. A, we took a wrong turn and found ourselves driving up the main runway. <laughs> B-52, I'm in Vietnam, yeah. B-52 is coming. So we were fire engine chasing us and we were taken to this place. We said, okay, okay, well, you know, you won't get on yet. Okay, it's all right. And there were loads and loads and loads of bands, including that guy who ended up in being Katrina and the Waves. <laughs> he was playing that. And, um, and we said, no, 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 it's okay. We'll, do, we'll, we'll go on later. We'll go on later. Okay, we're gone, you know. Uh, we're gone later, we're gone later. Uh, then eventually got to our, we've got to go on now. Oh, okay, we're gone. And we went on. And I think we didn't we didn't improvise. I think we played 20 minutes of like, really, absolutely, because we could do that. You know, we weren't all like fluffy around the edges all the time. And um, they said, oh, it's great. And we were rung up the next week by Jack, whatever his name was, Jack Thingybob, the, the book. I said, ah, oh, got a gig for you to go to play in Upper Hayford. Upper Hayford, right, okay, which is an air base, funny enough, where I grew up, near Vista in Oxfordshire. So we drove to Upper Hayford and in again our, our green battered bus. So uh, we drove into Upper Hayford. I think we probably, oh, what are you doing? You know, still looking like a bunch of hippies, slightly <laughs> made, but yeah. 
and they a they couldn't understand because we had women roadies. You see, that was our emancipation. We did have women right, roadies. Yes. We had a woman. We had a woman. Uh, we had two actually. Lynn, our roadie, who went on to be Tina Turner's right hand person, and she and she rang me up the day, and she actually said, "John, John, I've just I've just driven a truck again for a while, and I'm going on going to do um um oh, what's her name um." Uh, not Alison, but who's the who's the woman who's done who's really big uh, comes from Tottenham, you know? Oh, you know, superstar. She's going to. I'm doing the tour. Oh, so great! So she, you know, she did start. Lots of people started with her. Lots of people wrote like uh, um, um, Jim, Jim, who used to drive our bus, went on eventually to drive Dylan's bus. There you go. So the roadies were far more successful. Yeah, tour Dylan, you know. And, uh, and Jeremy, of course, owned, you know, went with Virgin and owned Chrysalis. Uh, and so we went to Upper Haven. We drove in and I, they couldn't, oh, who are these women? They're our roadies. Well, uh, uh, you've got women carrying your gear. Well, yeah, but they're, they're fine. They want to do it. And he said, oh, well, I don't think you should be, I think you should be carrying your own gear. I said, well, it's their job. They're fine. They're fine. And they set it up and that's fine. We help. It's okay. It's not, we're not persecutors. They're not slaves. They're, you know, they're really, you know, they're quite freely want to, they're, they're part of our road crew. Look, this is Lynn. She does our sound. She's our sort of second sound person. Oh, and then, then he said, look, Lionel Hampton played here last week and he carried his own vibes. I said, okay, so it didn't well, went off well. And at any rate, it went, it sort of disintegrated, disintegrated. Oh, and then they didn't want, and then this guy came up and he had this sort of stand-up row with, with Kanga, who's probably the guy you were going on about, we'll all look after our children. And Kanga, I think he started doing flip doing sort of somersaults on the stage and they'd had this they had this great, um, oh, great to do. This is the sort of scrapes we used to get into. And uh, great to do with this guy who was a colonel. He had this green tie. In your nice green tie. Oh, and they had to stand up. Meanwhile, Michael Dora, our guitarist, was at the bar sort of drinking Jim Daniels with this other colonel and getting into talk, talk, thinking like he thought he was in Catch-22 and talking to Marlo 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 And... Uh, it was funny, and then but, but the opera was eventually okay. You've got to leave now, and we had to be escorted. They had to send for the British police to escort us off because it was like it was this international incident. We had to be escorted off the base by the British, and we were banned from playing American air bases for life. Oh no! no, no. <laughs> that was missing our first big break. And Dear us. me. Well, so, look, so la just last question then. Just be if you could have said something to. Yeah. An 18-year-old, if you could have said something to your 18-year-old self, you know, there was one bit of advice or two, see, and you thought, oh, look, just listen to this kid. You know, what would it be? When I was 18. Well, yeah, so I suppose, or what you've kind of picked up over the decades that you think, God, that's, that's kind of wisdom that I've picked up through experience or just life, you know, that you think I would just say something to that person. It is easier to ride the horse in the direction in which it is going. <laughs> Just go with it. You don't get to choose, you've already chosen. Well, that's, that's probably when, when I did the ESC training in 1979, but that's another story. <laughs> um, uh, I think you need, you, it's hard. I think, it, I think life's, life's a bugger. And I think if you get it, it's a bugger. 
then you can you can it doesn't have to be all bad that it's a bugger yes if you if it's like yeah and there are there there are funny bar there are funny paths that you can find yourself going down which turn out to make your life much better mm. i mean you know i well it's like 34 35 years ago yeah 35 years ago i was i really admit i was a bit of a state I was to say, I was in those strange wilderness years. I was driving a van, lived in a council flat in West London, split up from my first wife, um, thinking, you know, I was, I was earning quite good money, driving a van, delivering, you know, delivering habitat furniture, cash in, you know, cash on delivery. So I was self-employed. So I wasn't, you know, wasn't like I was a van. God, I wouldn't want to be a van driver now. You know, I do 15 drops in a day and come out with a bundle, you know, God, you know, oh, oh Jesus. And, um, but it was very, my life was moribund. And, oh God, I'm going to get a bit sentimental. Is that okay? Yes. I, um, I met my second wife, actually, who, who unfortunately died about five years ago. She was a bit younger than me. And she sorted me out. And, um, and I also started finding work that I enjoyed doing. I found a way in that I could use music and play music and use music in a way that really I enjoyed. And, oh, God, yeah was beneficial to people. As I say, I'm not a therapist. I don't cure people. And, you know, I, I sit down. Now people, when asked what I do for a living, I say, I jam with autistic youth. You know, that's what I do. And I used to jam with musicians. And, and I'll tell you something. I, and when I jam with autistic youth or other people, I consider them to be, I consider them to be, just as much as musicians as the people I played with who you could normally what or you you conventionally call really brilliant musicians because I think music is such an amazing I will I will send you a few little clips of stuff I've done um I hope you enjoy it I'll send you some yeah yeah have you got an email send me yes. your email I'll send yeah. you an email on that one. email and I will, I will, I would, yeah. And um, it'd be lovely to get up to Norwich. I was speaking with a friend of mine, actually, Sue Carpenter up in Norwich. And the other day we accidentally found ourselves on, as you do, you press the wrong button, you find somebody on screen in front of you. <laughs> really weird nowadays. Oh, you were in my pocket. Now you're on my screen. Why did that happen? Um, <laughs> it happens to me constantly. But I think that's what it is. I, I was, and I found a way of, being able to play music in a way that a I made a living out of. I mean, you know, I'm not rich or anything like that, but I make an okay living. People pay me; they'll pay me to do what I do. And I think I'm not a music teacher, so I don't have all that strictures about you know time. Well, I do a little bit. I'm not a music therapist, although the work I do is sort of therapeutic by nature. Um, and I, my grand title is, I have this grand title, which has developed over the years. I'm a music and creative interaction specialist. 
That's my that's my that's my Ponzi type. And um, yeah, so I enjoy music, and I enjoy well. Gives that sometimes I'm sick of it, like we all are, you know. But I but you know I'm very very pleased, and I'm just a very real privilege to have actually done some of the work that I've done, you know, over the past 20, 30 years. Well, it, it sounds like it's it's going up rather than going well. Down. Well, I'm getting old now. Yeah, I can't afford to retire. But so, I do. But now, actually, fun enough, I do want to. I do actually want to play some. I mean, I have loads of songs and things that I've that I've been writing songs for years, and I may notice I've actually just upgraded. Oh, look! Can you see my studio? Look, see, I've just upgraded my uh, my new. Got a big bog off big black box which stands up there and says big silence and my new screens and my new cubase so i'm actually starting doing some work again i mean i use for my other stuff creating music but i'm actually starting doing my stuff again excellent look who yeah. was who was in that you said your your um first wife was an author what was her name i'm not sure i want to tell you that <laughs> no that's name, fine her I name was her name was dinah just curious. I just... No, she often she does write. She's like, if you look it up, she did. Ah, oh, it's raining. It's raining. My boy says it's raining. Nice. God, has it rained up there yet? Not yet. No, it's as dry as God. Um. Mm. Yes, yeah, she did. Um. Yeah, and uh, yeah. Uh, and then, but then she was quite a. She went like she only became a sort of best-selling novelist in her later years. You know, in her sixties, after she went to Spain and came back. But she was very, very. She was a really great theatre director, and she was one of those people who was slightly subjugated by um, masculinity of the nineteen early nineteen seventies. <laughs> <laughs> but she, she got through it. She got now, through it. Now she has more money than the rest of us put together. Well, good for I her. Don't, I don't know whether that's true or not, but you know. And she's because that's my daughter's brother. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, but I have three other children as well from my second wife, who was a wonderful woman too. Yes. Anyway, look, I better let you get on, but thank you ever so much. No, thank you. What are you doing with this? <laughs> well, I put I do these interviews and then um and and I sort of put them out, and people love them. And um, I think we have got rain. Yeah. Oh, so. Okay. Um, okay. Well, uh, 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 well, I try not to make me either too too sentimental or too much of an asshole. No. I think I, have, I think I think I have a tendency to both valences. <laughs> I think I think well, interesting. You know. No, you'll come over really well. People love love listening to these stories, by the way. I remember, I tell you, wow. Well, Norwich, I, re I remember Norwich. I should tell you, I'd be just I'd give me a few minutes on Norwich, the Orford Arms. Oh, I yes. love the Arms. Where do you I mean, because we used to do a lot of things in the Orford Arms, the Mischief, not so Mischief Tavern, those places, and UEA, because we used to, because it was like our local gig. Oh, we used to play Orford Arms quite um, regularly, which is now building society, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's down. That's where Jimi Hendrix played, wasn't it? Absolutely. That was before us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I, I really like Norwich. Well, and we played at the cathedral there as well. No, the the church. Is it cathedral? The, what's it called? The, the big church. Cathedral. 
Is it called the cathedral? There's two. There's oh. the Roman Catholic yeah. one, and then there's the. But big there's one. one where they do lots of gigs. Is it still a church? I don't know. I think we did that on the Gong Tour, actually. Yeah, I've, I've seen a few choirs there and, and various, not so many. More oh, rock you're thinking of St Andrew's Hall, aren't you? I am, yeah. Well, did that used to be a church? No. Oh, it looks like a church. It's kind of churchy-like. It yeah, yeah, yeah. Seems yeah. like a church. <laughs> 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 Absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah no, Norwich, I, I, I haven't been there for ages. I'm funny enough, I've, uh, yes, I, I would... Um, I don't know that I know anybody up there. Well, I know my friend Sue and a few other. I mean, there are still other few other people around there, living in that area from Norwich to. Uh, I mean, Henry Lassels is another Lassels who lives up there. He's a drummer. Used to play with Lena Lovich, and he lives near Norwich, up up in Suffolk. Yeah, hmm. there's a few still up there. Yes. Anyway, look, I better let you get on. But thank you That's ever all right. so much. That's me. Once I start talking, I go. Look, I know. Look, we must go. Look, take care and thank you ever so much. And you, David, nice to meet you and stay in touch. I said, Did you hear that? I heard that. Oh, that's your end. I was worried my computer was going to blow up. I think now it's your computer. You better turn your switches off. Oh, really? I'm ready to go. <laughs> no, just in case you get a power surge. Yeah, 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 you're right, you're right. Actually, I shall unplug everything. I would do that. Okay, stay in touch. And I'd love to go. So do you ever actually have people on your people on your programme playing? Yeah, we do actually. You I um yeah, if you send me a, a MP3, I can always I can always give it a spin. Actually. Oh, I well I'd like I could I'll send you up some of the, some of the stuff. I'll send you a selection of weird, the weird potted history. The weird potted oh, great, great, great version, a really great version. Well, you know, some of the stuff that I've done, yeah, you'd be interested in some of the stuff I've done. Because, I mean, I'm very, I mean, another great hero of this, Steve Reich. You know Steve Reich? Yes, yes. Steve Reich, I mean, another hero. And, like, I've got a lot of work when I would go and interview people uh, in certain places and then use, use speech to make into music. That was another one of my done that and, and make it into like almost musical oh what like it said on that bloody film musical documentary and I said I didn't mean by that I made documentaries about music I made I use music to make documentaries with I use people's speech and then using them in with the music uh but people edit them yeah anyway, look, yeah take, take care see you later and touch send me your email I will bye take and that was me in conversation with the one and only John Owen from the Global Village Trucking Company. And um, a big thank you for that. <laughs> Give me the time for that. A lot of time. It was an evening, basically. Anyway, if you want to contact me, God, if you got to the end of that interview, I'm impressed. You can via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do at C86show. Otherwise, um, yes, don't bother. But it's always nice. If you want to send a cheery, you know, message. And uh, also all these interviews have been uh, archived. It's true. I've got those on iTunes, Spotify and uh, Podbean. Anyway, this has been David Eastall. Have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>